You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Stephen Cabral, and here are some of the things that we cover in this episode. Ayurveda, doshas, epigenetics, functional medicine, the way that we are tied to diagnoses, and then big pharma, endomorphs, ectomorphs, mesomorphs, electromagnetic sensitivity, parasympathetic recovery. Uh, He's not a fan of the carnivore diet. IGF-1, water quality, and how fluoride and chlorine in our drinking water is screwing with our gut flora. Fasting, 77,000 man-made toxins that we're exposed to every day. We really dig deep. Dr. Stephen Cabral's uh, book is called The Rain Barrel Effect, which basically explains that we accumulate toxins and our body begins to break down when we have too much of it. And we need to do things to activate our liver and to eat in a way and exercise in a way and sleep in a way that gets rid of those toxins because when the rain barrel fills up, it overflows, and then we get disease. We talk a little bit about inflammation as well and how inflammation is important to us. We need it. We need it to identify some other things that are going wrong with us. Um, So taking a daily anti-inflammatory at a therapeutic dose may not be the best idea. It's a really fascinating conversation. Um, Dr. Cabral can be found on his podcast, which is called The Cabral Concept. And uh, this guy has put out a lot of content, a lot of podcasts, and the way that he speaks is in like chunks. You can tell that he knows what he's talking about because I ask a question and then he delivers like a really well thought out response every single time. This is another podcast dedicated to helping you live the best possible life. Um, This includes some Ayurvedic practices, which for some people is super woo-woo, and for other people is just basic medicine. Uh, We know that the Ayurvedic approach was the first people to do plastic surgery, and most of our pharmaceutical drugs are derived from uh, Ayurvedic herbs like papain, which is in the papaya seeds. It's a really cool conversation. Um, For this episode, Two things, two big things actually. One is we are about to release a CBD product. Natural Stacks is about to release actually release two CBD products. And as you probably have guessed by now, um, myself, I'm a fan of cannabis and CBD and its healing powers. So go to naturalstacks.com/cbd to learn more. Also, you may have noticed that we've spun off a little bit. And now the Optimal Performance Podcast is now more of a standalone brand away from um, Natural Stacks just because it's part of the plan. We want to grow this sucker and we really need your help. If you like these episodes, please share with them. Subscribe to us on um, all the podcasting platforms. Share this with your friends. Share this with your family and spread this word. Also, you can go to chiefsformen.com, which is a soap company aimed at the gentleman, and you can use the code word OPTIMAL for 25% off your first online purchase. It's the same owners from Natural Stacks. Again, and more, here we go. Uh, If you want daily inspiration from me via text message, um, you may know by now that I'm a life coach, a performance coach, and uh, a writer, a blogger, all that stuff. If you want text messages from me every single morning with a little bit of inspiration, a mind hack, a biohack, a spirit hack, and a life hack, um, I'm going to give you those daily directly to your text, directly to your phone. So if you're interested in, in receiving text messages from me, 
don't worry. It's no strings attached. I'm not going to call you or do anything like that. I'm just going to send you stuff right to your phone so you can start your day kicking ass from the get-go. Just send me an email, sean at optimalperformance.com, and I will share those with you every single day. I'll text those right to your phone. If you dig the cut of my jib, <laughs> if you like if you like my style, and uh, you've been listening to these podcasts for a while, go to seanmccormick.com to read a little bit more about what I'm up to. And I'd love to hear from you guys, as always. Like, um, let me know. If you have guests that you want to hear, let me know. If you hate this, let me know. If you love it, let me know. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Stephen Cabral. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Dr. Stephen Cabral, who's a board-certified naturopathic doctor and also the author of The Rain Barrel Effect. Dr. Stephen Cabral, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. So in preparation for our podcast today, um, I've realized that we could go lots of different directions that I'm excited to talk to you about, but I think that there were some really great keys that I that I took out from your book. Um, but before we dig into the topics, um, I asked this question of all of our guests, and I lead with this thing. Uh, can you tell us uh, what you've put in your body today? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, as we're recording this, it is our New Year's functional medicine detox. So uh, four times a year, every 12 weeks with every season, my kind of online community and myself get together and we do a functional medicine detox with literally thousands of people from all over the world. So today is day five of that. So I've had um, a specific shake in the morning, which has all the phase one, phase two detox nutrients. Maybe we can talk about that later in the show if you're interested. And then um, a vegan-based lunch. I'll do another shake uh, in about two hours from now. And then I do a, a let's call it a paleo-style dinner uh, tonight. Nice. I'd love to go right into it. Tell us what's in those <laughs> what's in those shakes, man. So, you know, well, the problem with this natural health field, and it's such a, I'm, I'm just such a huge proponent of it. I've been in it now for 20 years. Um, I love all the work that other people are doing. I try to promote them. But one of the issues that we have here are essentially people coming up with their own terminology for detox, for cleanse, for this, for that. And what I think we're actually doing our own industry a disservice. So it allows the media to kind of poke fun at us and, and you know, other doctors say, well, there's no, um, you know, there's no truth behind that. And a lot of times they're actually right. And that's because I see a lot of people promoting a detox. I'm not going to name any names right now. And they, what they do is they give you, here's what to eat for breakfast. Here's what to have for lunch. Here's what to have for dinner. And they're very healthy foods, but that has nothing to do with detoxification. It's simply an elimination diet. Again, elimination diets are fantastic. Cut out your sugar. Cut out your, you know, Kool-Aid. Cut out your uh, soft drinks, energy drinks, processed food. I love it. That's great. But that's not a detox. A detox is actually when you ramp up your own natural detoxification systems, namely your liver. So your liver is this big organ under the right side of your rib cage, and it's responsible for filtering all of the blood in your body every six minutes. And we know how it works. It works in what's called phase one and phase two detox. Phase one are your vitamins. B vitamins like folate, methylcobalamin, well, methylfolate, uh, B6. We look at zinc, selenium. We look at glutathione, vitamin C, vitamin E. It's antioxidants, vitamins, all those great things. 
And then what your body does is it changes it from a fat-soluble toxin into what's called a water-soluble toxin. And that's used through your cruciferous vegetables like your broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower. And those things call, contain sulforaphane or cysteine, N-acetylcysteine, taurine, and they produce larger amounts of glutathione. Now, these chemicals from the environment, aluminum and mercury and plastics, et cetera, are able to be removed through our urine or stool or sweat or huffing out through our lungs. So what a functional medicine detox does is give you more of those nutrients to be able to detox at a faster rate along with specific fasting. And so are the elements of your shake aimed at um, activating the liver? That's exactly correct. So it supports it. So we never say in naturopathic medicine, integrative health, that we are trying to do the body, do the job for the body. We simply support the body and it knows how to heal on its own. Yeah, you trust the body and just activate and optimize its functions so that it can uh, do its thing properly. That's right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Can you tell us specifically, I mean, you already said it, but I think the word toxin and detoxify um, are vague for people. Um, can you give us some examples, maybe give us specifically an idea of what a toxin is, both external, both exogenous and endogenous, and um, how, uh, how it affects us negatively? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, part of the issue is this, is that, again, it, there's so much confusion around it. But if you go to become a medical doctor or a naturopathic doctor, a chiropractor, any type of doctor, you study what's called toxicology. So we know toxins exist. I mean, that's, that's obviously scientifically proven. We also know the World Health Organization has shown us that there are 77,000 man-made chemicals. That's the minimum. We know that 50% of those have been tested and are carcinogenic, meaning they cause cancer. These are things that you would find in your environment that are, again, plastics. There are things like triclosan in your toothpaste. There are um, sulfates that are in your shampoos and conditioners. The average person is exposed to 126 chemicals before they even leave the house. It could be the aluminum foil you cook your food in. It could be an aluminum pan and spatula. It could be the tap water with the chlorine and fluoride. So what happens is we're exposed to these things. They're pretty much invisible all day long. Now it's our liver's job, our kidney's job, our white blood cells to latch onto these and remove them from the body. Typically, we do a pretty good job. But the problem is, and that is why the, the title of the book is called The Rain Barrel Effect, eventually, over time, we begin to fill up that rain barrel. This is when we start to see the diseases that our genetics have predisposed us to. Keep in mind, genetics mean almost nothing until the body is in a place where it can no longer maintain its equilibrium or homeostasis. That's when genetics matter. That's when you get the rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, etc. So toxins manifest themselves through inflammation, which then essentially uh, lets the genetics manifest themselves, which is called epigenetics. Right, right. Okay, so as we go through our day drinking fluoridated water that also has some op opiates in it and, um, you know, drink out of a plastic bottle, and so we're, we're basically uh, taking in those toxins all the time, and when they reach that point where the rain barrel is full, that's when disease happens. And I know that disease is uh, is a major focus. The term itself um, is a major focus uh, of the book. Uh, is, do I have that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. It's it's simply put, and obviously it's controversial, but I, I really don't believe in the disease process uh, or disease name, I should say, that we talk about in conventional medicine. And that's because we give diseases a name for only one reason. One, to give credit to the 
doctor, PhD researcher who put their name on that specific disease, such as Hashimoto's. Um, but really, what it does is allow us to bill health insurance and prescribe a pharmaceutical. And I had the same thing done myself. I mean, I had four, five, six given diseases when I was 17 years old. The problem is, if you go with that diagnosis, and a lot of us are happy to get a diagnosis, you get treated with a pharmaceutical. That pharmaceutical, you need to take for the rest of your life. So all you're really doing is masking the symptom. You're never asking why. So I let people know there's nothing wrong with saying I have the name of a disease. For example, I had type 2 diabetes. I had rheumatoid arthritis. I had myalgic encephalomyelitis. I had POTS. I had a multitude of things. But what the problem was, I never asked why until later. When you ask why, then you realize that the disease name is simply a collection of symptoms. Rheumatoid arthritis, what does it mean? Well, it's joint-based destruction from CD8 cells. Well, why the, why the increase in CD8 cells? Like, why the cell destruction? Okay, we can begin to look at intestinal permeability of the gut. We can look at viruses. We can look at heavy metals. So my job is to simply keep asking why where others stop at a disease name. So it's clearing out... Um... Uh, getting to the root causes of of any sort of collection of symptoms that some doctor says, oh, you have IBS, so you need this sort of um, uh, pharmaceutical to help treat that versus, well, let's figure out why your bowels are irritated, right? That's exactly correct. I mean, what is IBS? Irritable bowel syndrome. So you went through all that for some doctor to tell you that you have irritable bowels. You probably knew that already on your own, right? Like this, we don't need uh, someone to tell yeah. us that. You don't need to yeah. tell me that uh, my <laughs> stomach is hurting all day and I'm in the bathroom a lot. I'm clear exactly. on that. <laughs> yes. And so then we just prescribe, right, antispasmoidals, all sorts of different things where, you know, it's, it's candida overgrowth. It's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It might be H. pylori. It could be parasites. could be sympathetic nervous system dominance. I mean, you can figure it out. There's an answer for everything. It's just you have to go deep on it. And what are some of the ways that you go deep on it? Our first thing, like first and foremost, if we can get people running someone's called subclinical lab tests, so functional medicine lab testing, it's called. Running your blood work is fantastic. I don't, I actually don't disagree with anything in conventional medicine for the most part, meaning that I don't like what they use, but I'm not going to deny that pharmaceuticals don't mask symptoms. I'm gonna, not going to deny the great uses of blood work because we do it in our practice as well, except for the pharmaceuticals, of course. But Conventional medicine is absolutely best used in life-saving situations. You know, I had someone in my practice, um, hadn't seen them for six months, they're doing great. All of a sudden, they actually got, this is, I mean, this is an extreme example, a flesh-eating bacteria on their hand, and the bacteria was literally eating away the flesh on, their, on the small finger. In this case, it's actually best not to take any chances of a staph infection and potentially dying. There are times to use conventional medicine, and I agree with that, but for most people, it's chronic-based issues. It's chronic disease. It's weight gain. It's lethargy. It's low mood. So what we do is we run hormone testing. We run uh, cortisol testing. We run food sensitivity testing. We run organic acids tests to look at the digestive system, stool tests for H. pylori and uh, bacterial overgrowth in the gut. We run omega-3 testing so that we don't guess if you need omega-3s or not. We can actually tell you. We run heavy metal detox, uh, heavy metal testing to look to see if there's any heavy metals. And you can test for anything under the sun. And the truth is now you can get the lab shipped right to your home. You don't even have to ask your doctor. That's the amazing thing we live right now. I wish we had that 20 years ago when I was going through this. Yeah. In my experience with both this podcast and my own um, endeavors into living the most optimal life I can, you know, now you can, you can get stool tests, you can get spit tests. You know, I, I sent, uh, I sent a vial of my spit to, 
the deuterium, Center for Deuterium Control, no? Uh, Center for uh, Deuterium Depletion. Um, are you hip to, are you aware of uh, deuterium and, and what they're doing down there? We actually, no, no, we don't, we don't use that specifically. I'm interested, but I, I don't use that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, well, we can, that's a whole, that's, that's a podcast, <laughs> that's a podcast coming. So we can, yes, we can talk more about that. But yeah, the, the, the access that we have now to, it's not cheap though, uh, is it? No, it's not. And, and so we don't own any of our own labs. So we don't, you know, what we do is we offer people the ability to test themselves pretty much anywhere in the world, uh, but it's not covered by health insurance. So what we do is we don't use one lab. So we have about a dozen different labs who are all the best at one specific thing. Uh, we double blind them ourselves. I mean, I do the test. I do it twice, same day, same exact time. Um, and I send it in to make sure that I'm getting the same exact result because I use this in clinical practice. And so I need to make sure that it absolutely does work. So yeah, that's what we do. And um, I mean, it works. It's worth the money to be honest with you, because you're probably going to spend hundreds of dollars on nutritional supplements and different systems. And so you'll spend it one way or the other. We just like to fine tune it. Yeah. One thing that um, I really enjoyed your book and I enjoyed your story because um, <clears throat> much like um, most people motivated to help others is they had something that they were dealing with and they found an alternative way to make themselves better, for bigger, faster, stronger, more healthy. Um, and I, you know, I come to realize that, that you've you've managed to synthesize your study and your areas of expertise from Ayurveda to naturopathy and many more to, to try to um, pull from a giant toolbox. I'm wondering um, how, how challenging is it for you uh, or how was it challenging in the beginning to synthesize? And if you could please list off some of the areas of, of, of education that, that you've gone through, how challenging is it to synthesize the different areas of ancient ancient practices and Ayurveda to, to, to bring it into the current day to help treat um, pe the people's health? Yeah, without a doubt. And I mean, I was convinced um, when I was going through this, my own healing process, that there was one absolute best form of medicine. And that's what eventually I would practice and, and teach to others. So from 17 to 27, I was going from specialist to specialist, doctor to doctor, conventional medicine, uh, we'll call it alternative or natural-based medicine. And I was doing muscle testing, I was doing homeopathy, I was doing Reiki, I was doing uh, manual manipulation, I was doing um, osteopathy, like you name it, I was doing it. And I would study it, I mean, because that's like, I'm a very obsessive-based personality and I get deep into it. Well, Eventually, I ended up meeting an uh, amazing practitioner, my mentor, Dr. Pete, who essentially said to me, there is no one best form of essentially anything in life. There are paths that we take, and our job is to integrate them as best we can and to enable us not to have to make the patient fit into our box, but allow the patient to get the type of therapy that they rightly deserve. So from there, she helped me get well. Um, she combined Ayurvedic medicine with the state-of-the-art lab testing we were just speaking about. And she also combined that with um, genetics to allow me to understand that this is in my genetics, but it doesn't need, mean that need, that needs to be manifested. So I got well. I studied then all over the world. I studied actually demand in India and in Sri Lanka, studying Ayurvedic medicine in the Netherlands and Europe. Europe. And then I studied um, traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture in China at a TCM hospital, and then all over the United States for functional medicine. So 
what I've realized is that all of these forms of medicine truly are remarkable. The problem is you need to know when to use it and with who. I prefer a truly integrative approach that allows me to say, I don't just have to use Ayurveda and the great herbs that they use in detoxification. I can use a little bit of TCM. I can use some functional medicine lab testing. So that's what I do today, and, and we're trying to teach it actually to other practitioners now all over the world. I'd like to dig into Ayurveda a little bit further because I it makes tons of sense to me, and I've seen um, friends and family benefit greatly from understanding uh, their doshas. Can you walk us through sort of um, how you view Ayurveda or Ayurvedic medicine and explain what a dosha is. Absolutely. So Ayurvedic medicine literally translates to the truth of life or the science of life. There are eight branches to it. A lot of people don't realize this, but conventional medicine and all forms of medicine have their root in Ayurvedic medicine. When I was in India, one of the places that I studied up north, there were reps from almost every pharmaceutical company studying with the doctors there to learn the herbs that they could potentially use as extracts to potentially use as patents one day. One of the best, one of the best uh, variations of this is a statin drug, which comes from an herb, which comes from essentially red yeast rice. And so we know that Ayurvedic medicine knows what they're talking about. Also, I can tell you this, that Ayurvedic medicine is so in-depth, you can literally spend your entire life studying it. And yes, you will gain mastery of it, but you will learn new things all of the time. The way that Ayurvedic medicine shines is that obviously it has 6,000 years of uh, science behind it. And there are many, many textbooks that go over the research. So, for example, there's a book called The Scientific Basis for Ayurvedic Therapies. And it's all research on it, proving that it works, such as panchakama, detoxification, all of these things. And it's over 700 pages. Well, to get back to your question about the doshas, that's what Ayurvedic medicine is best known for. But believe it or not, they were the first ones to do plastic surgery. They did all of these things. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. With the doshas, though, it comes down to this. We know in the world, you can go outside, and everybody that's in the health and fitness industry can say as well, you have some people that we call hard gainers. Those are the people that can eat as many carbs as they want, and they never gain weight. They're not going to get type 2 diabetes, and they have, a, they have thinner joints. They have typically longer, thinner neck, more oval-shaped face, and again, harder to put on weight. Then on the other side of the spectrum, we have the endomorph, also called the kapha body type in Ayurveda. Those are the people who are more carb sensitive. Doesn't mean that they don't have need carbs. It means that they're more sensitive to carbs. They need a little bit more exercise. So then in the middle, we have the mesomorph. Easier to look at and say, okay, this person has more defined muscle. They're more like the, let's say like a, a tight end in football. They're more like um, a LeBron James in basketball, right? LeBron James would be like a pitta vata. So what we're looking at is understanding people's genetic body types. So that's called the prakriti. The vakruti is actually what they become. So in life, we have our genetics of who we are, and then we have our phenotype of who we can become. So it's that person that's a hard gainer. They can put on the weight. They can put on the muscle, but that's not their natural genotype. So Ayurveda has this down to an absolute science. Keep going, man. <laughs> I don't like, keep going. Uh, this, it's, it's fascinating because when it comes to uh, performance, when it comes to being who you want to be, uh, I, think that that's, I think that's an interesting track. So that's like eating at the right time if you're an ectomorph or a mesomorph. Can you, can, you, can you keep going? I love this track. Absolutely. So what we have here is not only the body types affecting um, your basically overall nutrition, your exercise, what you're predisposed to, it also affects the mind as well. For example, the people that are more of the pitta-based body type or mesomorph, 
they're more prone towards aggression, higher testosterone, more of the leadership, confidence base, but they're also then more prone to inflammation. So we look at that as well. The kapha body type, more of the rest and relax, but less interest in doing a lot of more of the vigorous based exercise, even though they could benefit greatly from it. And the ectomorph, more prone towards anxiety, um, heightened state of alertness, more towards fatigue, more towards catabolic, breaking down muscle tissue more than being able to build it up. So when you look at people, you can begin to view them in terms of their natural body type and what they're going to be more prone to, but realizing that everybody can maintain a healthy, balanced body. And that's what we try to do in our practice as well. Tell us a little bit about the how the wind, water, earth, and fire um, tie into this. Sure. So my job, and I really feel that this is my kind of mission, my goal, my job, whatever it might be, is that to take this ancient-based science, which is still practiced today, by the way, in India, um, and all over the world, to make it more, let's call it up-to-date. And I feel like I'm doing a disservice by saying that because Ayurvedic in itself has all the wisdom you need, and it's not my job to essentially try to make it better. But what I can say is this, that they have a different verbiage. They have a different language. And so by using their language, sometimes it waters it down. It Sometimes it makes it sound a little bit more woo-woo or voodoo, but it's not. And I want to explain that right now. So the kapha body type, would, and that's more of the endomorph. So and again, we know this by our own science. We call it somatotyping, which is very different. We looked at that in terms of psychology in people. And so we've studied this, again, from a modern-day perspective. But the kapha body type or endomorph is the water and the earth. And that means what? They're more prone to accumulation and mass. We know that, right? If you look at a lineman in football, football's, American football is one of my favorite sports. Are they, do they have the same physical makeup as a wide receiver? Like a, um, a, even, let's just talk about um, a, a good example out there who would be a, a wide receiver. Not even like a Jerry Rice, but just someone thinner from like back in the day that we all know about. Um, they're going to be thinner, right? And the linemen are going to be larger. Yeah, so when you look at, or even let's, let's look at a sumo wrestler, or let's even look at, you know, gross generalizations of certain people and where they live in the world. Like if you look at the Maasai that we always talk about, you know, in terms of like diets, that's going to be predominantly a vata-based society. And then when we look at um, like a Samoan body type, it's going to be more of an endomorphic body type. Both are great, both are beautiful body types, but they're absolutely going to need different forms of nutrition and uh, different... Um, ways in which their bodies are affected, uh, affected. So the lighter body type is more of the air and ether, it's called. And then in the middle, the mesomorph is more of the water and the fire, predominantly fire. It's the fire body type. And we look at this, it's strong digestion, it's leadership, it's take charge, it's rage, it's anger and irritability at its worst, but at its best, it's creativity and leadership and taking care of people, all of those great things. So again, this is a, an in-depth topic that would take you quite some time to master, but that does not mean that you should not go out and really try to learn more about this. And, and I've done some pretty in-depth shows on this as well. Right. And, and, and we can eat for, we, we can, and we should be eating for our body type, right? Correct. Our body type, not only for what it is genetically, but where we are today. So that if you are a little bit more catabolic, meaning like you're breaking down more than you're building up, that's a different diet. And that is more of the vata state, right? So even if you're a meso mesomorph, or endomorph, then you can eat as a vata because you might be breaking down too much, such as an elite athlete that practices four to six hours a day. 
they're more of a vata movement-based state. They need more food even if they're not the vata. You can see how, how complex this can get. But again, yeah. It, it, yeah. it takes bio-individuality to the next level. I mean, if someone's into true biohacking, or I would say, you know, biohacking, I would really talk about more like bioregulating your body. This is it. I mean, this is the next level that will be talked about in the future because it's, it's still being uncovered right now, meaning it's there. But in the West, we have a hard time being able to decipher what they're talking about in Ayurvedic medicine. Let's just take the gut, for example. Like yes. what, regardless of, regardless of your, of your uh, body type, if you have a gut issue, um, what are some things that, that people should be paying attention to or, or experimenting with to, to help figure out for themselves what's going on? Absolutely. And to be honest, that's why I recommend. I don't think that people need to necessarily master their body type quite yet. Because what you need to do is master where you're at right now in life. And then the long term is keeping the body balanced and at a state of equilibrium. So what I recommend is if you have bloating or gas or acid reflux or constipation or loose stool, let's figure out what's going on with your gut. There's obviously something wrong. There's, there's most likely some type of overgrowth. So we recommend running what's called an organic acids test and a stool test. And what those do is they look for candida overgrowth and bacterial overgrowth. They look for H. pylori and they look for parasites. I'm telling you right now, the likelihood that it's one of those is quite high, probably 90%. We've seen over a quarter million people in our practice. I can tell you 90% of those people, it's one of those. For the 10%, it is what's called a sympathetic nervous system dominance, a fight or flight based issue affecting the gut, which means that your body's in a constant state of stress, which does not allow for what's called a peristaltic movement in the intestines. So the food gets backed up. The ileocecal valve, which essentially keeps the small intestine from backfilling with all the bacteria in the large intestine, doesn't stay closed. It stays open or it stays open too long, and you basically give yourself SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that is in sometimes multiple cases. People with SIBO, sometimes it's caused by their own body rather than antibiotics. So what we recommend is, is regardless of your body type, there's a dysfunction that can happen to any body type. Let's figure that out. Let's make sure we get you on the plan to remove the overgrowth, whatever it is, and then repopulate and rebalance that gut microbiome. Got it. Got it. Okay, I want to change, um, change topics here for a little bit because um, – one thing that, uh, and this is an epigenetic concern, and it's only getting worse. Can you talk us uh, talk us through a little bit about electromagnetic sensitivity? Absolutely. And so I think this is going to become a much larger issue in about two years to three years from now. And um, the reason is this. We're moving from 4G to 5G, and the signal is going to be around 5 to 10x stronger. So the people that were sensitive before are going to be much more sensitive now. The issue is this. Like most toxins, this is invisible. And in the United States, we do very little research on this. Of course, we have a good reason probably not to do a lot of the research. And that's because what are we even going to do if we find out that it is causing cancer or it is causing DNA-based mutations or it is causing more ADHD, ADHD as they're finding in Germany, right? So Germany and Europe, they do a lot more of the scientific research on all of these things than we do. It's also one of the reasons why in Europe, they allow about one-tenth of the toxins than we do in the United States. So they have somewhere around 8,000 to 10,000. We have about 77,000 or 80 plus thousand toxins in the United States. And again, these are literally the ones that we know about. So electromagnetic hypersensitivity um, is a sensitivity to EMFs. 
It's also a sensitivity to electroradiation. These can come from your cell phone, your computer, Wi-Fi. It can come from smart meters on the side of your house, which basically check your electricity usage. Um, it can come from a neighbor's modem. So there's many different devices that can affect us. Some people who are in more of a Vata-based state, more anxious, more hypersensitive, more run down, are more affected. And what we're finding right now is that we know the human is 99% vibrational-based matter. So if you enter another frequency or vibration, it makes sense to our very novice understanding that there could be a real issue with changing our vibration or with beginning to change our DNA. And we do know that EMFs are beginning to actually change our genetics, change our DNA. Uh, the greatest example is um, the cell phone to the head. Yes, and so the studies they did, because they knew they were gonna come out negative, is they tested your cell phone about one inch from your head. I don't know anyone out there who talks with their cell phone one inch from their head. So what we do is we put our ear pieces or our phone right to our ear. And we've seen what they can do for, in terms of um, inflammation and DNA and brain-based issues. So I'm a little bit uh, weary and leery of what this can mean in terms of our uh, disease-based processes in the future. How can we begin to explore whether or not we have electromagnetic hypersensitivity? I actually don't believe that there's a great test right now to see if you're suffering from it, except that if you remove yourself from that source and keep all of your other variables the same, then you'll know. So what does that mean? Well, it means spending a week, if you want, in a cabin, like going and camping. That's one of the greatest examples. People get all the negative ions from being around the ocean or a lake or walking you know, in the woods, whatever it might be. If you feel dramatically better, even just taking a walk in the woods without your phone, without anything, you could be more sensitive to it. But the other thing is this. I just know that there's no way we're going to escape it. I have a modem in my office. I have two computers in my office. I have my cell phone. So what I do is I use EMF-based cases. I use an EMF uh, laptop-based uh, pad. I use an iPad-based case. And what I try to do is not – my bedroom is EMF-free. And that's what I recommend for others as well. So no smart devices in your bedroom. Yeah, I think that's I think that's good advice, and and it's only going to become more important that people are aware of of that in 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 yeah in their day to day and in their sleep. It's funny because you know when folks take vacations or take a trip or go to the beach, even if they have their phone with them, you know you get the oh man, I feel so good, I feel recharged, I feel grounded, I feel like I'm fresh and full of energy, and and yeah, it may have something to do with the fact that you're not at work, but it also may have something to do with the fact that you're not sitting under terrible lighting all day in a cubicle where there are just like massive amounts of EMFs just penetrating you all day long, 40 hours a week, right? I mean, no wonder you feel so good. Without a doubt, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you also get all the negative ions getting released into your body. And negative ions they're showing right now are able to potentially deflect EMFs in the air. <clears throat> excuse me. So what that means is this, is that they're debating and figuring out right now if something as simple as keeping household plants in your house and keeping, uh, meaning like spider-based plants and certain types of succulents and something called mother's mother-in-law's tongue and using things like rock salt lamps, if those are able to help cut down on EMFs. So I'm interested in those types of studies because why not? A $39 rock salt lamp? Sure, we'll use that. Keeping plants in your house is great anyway. So if we can do that, great. And then like you just said, even if you take your cell phone to the beach, 
Well, you're getting, hopefully you're barefoot, you're walking around on the sand, you're getting all the negative ions from the ocean. So these are all great things to just try to participate in even more as we're so immersed in our digital-based environment. I used to own uh, float tank centers and um, I would, you know, your best ideas come when you're in water. Like uh, when you're, whether you're in a float tank or, or taking a shower, there's, you know, you don't, you don't bring your phone with you into the shower, but when you have time and peace to just chill and relax, maybe you're singing a song, you're being washed over with water that's, that's surrounding you with negative ions. Um, that's where you have epiphanies. That's where you have all the great creative ideas is because you're, you're, you're sort of fleshing that out. I had no idea that you own uh, float centers. That's amazing. That's such a great, uh, you were ahead of your time. We'll put it that way for sure. They're just starting to catch on, especially around the New England area around here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we opened uh, we op- I opened the first one in Seattle in 2012 and at that time there were 35 float centers across the country and now there are over 500. So, one of the great things though about float tanks and getting out to the beach and and you know, taking a walk, taking a hike in a forest um, is that these are all parasympathetic nervous system activities. And so what you do is when you're on vacation or you're in, doing a float or you're doing uh, cryo or you're in a sauna is that you're activating your parasympathetic nervous system. This means you're turning off your fight or flight. This is the only time that your body is truly rejuvenating, that you're beginning to replenish and rebuild those cells and immune cells uh, and truly rejuvenating the body. And that's why I'm such a proponent of people doing more parasympathetic nervous system activities. Even meditation, right? Where you don't need any tricks or gadgets or anything else except for your mind just to just to allow your brain to relax too. Dr. Cabral, are there any tinctures or supplements or uh, vitamins in your mind that that everyone should be taking every single day? That's, that's actually a great question. I have an um, upcoming um, show on this and post on this and, and we'll, you know, let's go over the, the skinny on that right now. And there are, there are actually multiple articles written on this and it's called essentially the top 12 um, vitamins that most doctors and functional medicine doctors recommend and prescribe. And the reason they recommend them is not because they want to use supplements with every person, but they do lab testing. And they, we literally lab test everyone for their vitamin levels and mineral levels and everything else. And you can actually, you can just tell someone concretely, like, listen, I'm not asking you to take the supplement. Your body is. Your body is deficient in this, and you're already eating a great diet. One of the reasons is that even if you're eating organic food, it's anywhere between 13 and 30% less nutrient dense than it was before 1960. And that's because we don't use manure for fertilizers much anymore. We don't do a three field rotation system. There's a lot that we don't do. So the vitamins that most doctors recommend are a good activated multivitamin or an all in one shake. It's very different than a regular multivitamin you would get at CVS or Target or et cetera. So what they are a methylated version. So they're going to give you, instead of selenium, seleniomethionine, they're going to give you, instead of B12 as silenocobalamin, which is a uh, B12 essentially attached to cyanide molecule, they're giving you methyl-based cobalamin, a methylated version, which means that you're able to fully absorb it even with an MTHFR-based gene mutation. They're giving you methylfolate. They're giving you, um, instead of magnesium oxide or calcium carbonate, they're giving you magnesium glycinate or uh, different forms of uh, absorbable calcium. So these are vitamins that you can absolutely absorb and that aren't going to build up and become toxic. Vitamin D is another one. Only three out of 10 people that I lab test are vitamin D proficient, meaning not between 30 and 80, between 50 and 70 nanograms per deciliter. So that's important. Omega-3s, less than 
one out of 10 people I test, even with the healthy diet, are getting a proper ratio of three to one for omega-6s to omega-3s. And some people debate it should even be a closer to a two to one or one to one ratio. And that's one of the easiest ones to be able to supplement with or begin to eat smaller, more wild fish such as sardines, anchovies, mackerel, wild salmon, trout. Another great one is this, is digestive enzymes. So a lot of functional medicine doctors, integrative health practitioners are beginning to give many more people digestive enzymes, especially with lunch. And the reason is that if we don't slow down our lifestyle and we don't relax during lunch or any meal, we're not going to be able to break down the food as well, which means it's going to take more energy, which means we're going to have less energy. We're going to reach more for caffeine or processed carbs. So by giving someone a digestive enzyme, it allows them to break down the good food they're eating easier, faster, which allows to less fermentation or bacterial buildup in the gut, and they absorb more of the vitamins and minerals from those foods. So those are a handful right there um, that we use all the time in my practice. I'm happy to give you more, but those are ones for daily use. And then there are some that you might use you know, every once in a while when you need to rebuild a reba- uh, an imbalance in your body. What are some of the ingredients in a, in a digestive enzyme? So a good digestive enzyme should be multifaceted, meaning like you're looking for things digest proteins, which would be proteases. You're looking for things that break down fat, which would be lipase. Lipase breaks down um, all sorts of different fats that come from the diet. And then you're looking for things that break down carbohydrates. Now, that might be something specialized, which we use, which is xylanase, and then it helps break down fructans, which cause a lot of bloating in people, uh, even without candida or bacterial buildup. It's going to contain things like amylase. It's going to contain cellulase to help you break down your kale or your cruciferous-based vegetables. So we look for those, and then we love adding in some um, extra papain, which comes naturally from the seeds of papaya, as well as bromelain, which comes from the core of the pineapple. Those will help help build up additional um, heat-based digestive enzymes and heat such as HCL, HCL and pepsin in the stomach. Man, you got that down pat, man. <laughs> that sounded great. <laughs> um, one of the things that I that I read uh, in the book uh, talks about inflammation, and uh, inflammation gets a bad rap because because uh, chronic inflammation it can lead really quickly to a degradation of the body. Um, and you make the case that inflammation is necessary for us to understand if something is going on. And you even suggested in the book that uh, taking like a daily natural anti-inflammatory may not be that great of an idea. And for a guy like myself who's taking curcumin every day, uh, made my eyebrows raise. Can you explain a little bit more in depth as to why maybe daily anti-inflammatories are not the best route and how, first and then second, how we can identify where and how we have inflammation? Absolutely. And so what we want to look at is this, is that inflammation is not a disease. It's not something specifically to be treated, at least in the long term. And if you do anything to block inflammation, you're stopping some process within the body. So the body is creating inflammation because it has a need to. So when you work out and you create microscopic tears in your muscle tissue or connective tissue or fascia or anything, that's not a bad thing. We're looking to then rebuild that. The problem is, If we did a really hard workout, that might be simply too hard for our body right now because of lack of sleep, lack of good nutrition, et cetera. 
we create an overabundance of inflammation. Now, is that the body's fault or did we do too much? There are other examples. In autoimmune-based processes, we get inflammation of, let's say, the joints, such as rheumatoid arthritis, or of the nerves, the myelin sheath, as in MS. So do we want to block the process? Now, I'm in agreement that we don't want the pain and we don't want to suffer, so I'm in total agreement. If we're going to use anti-inflammatories, we need to know why, and we need to be working on the underlying root cause, because if we're simply even using natural anti-inflammatories, such as amazing ones that I believe in, like boswellia, curcumin, and things such as ginger, huge fan. However, if we're using those indiscriminately and not understanding why we're using them, then we're creating additional damage, and we're masking the symptoms of why we're getting the inflammation in the first place. And also, using anti-inflammatories too much can negate certain workout effects. And we've seen that. Using antioxidants directly after a workout can halt tissue repair. And that's because inflammation is part of the tissue repair process. That's like, uh, yeah, after exercise, you don't want to facilitate autophagy. You want to grow. You want to allow it to grow. But I'm, but I'm, I'm still curious about how how taking a daily anti-inflammatory, a natural anti-inflammatory, is it really harmful and how to be taking it daily? I think we're talking about also dosage. So if you're cooking or using or even supplementing with a little bit of curcumin, I don't see that as an issue. What I see as an issue is a therapeutic dose. And from there, I'm talking about uh, if we're using a, a a phospholipid-based curcumin, it might be anywhere from 500 milligrams to 1,000. If you're using it just with a bioparine or black pepper, it'd be more like a three to four gram dosage. Well, at that point, we're, we are having an effect on the body. Remember, herbs are medicine. If we're talking about oregano, if we're talking about curcumin, if we're talking about an herb we were given, we were given that as medicine. Do we need medicine on a daily basis? If so, why? Why are you using it? My job is to always ask why. So that's what I ask people. A little bit of curcumin on a daily basis. I don't have a process with. I don't have a problem with that. But do keep in mind that inflammation is vitally important for your body. You can't go through proper immune system function, proper cell turnover, and autophagy without inflammation. So we don't want to squelch inflammation completely. Our job is always about balance and achieving equilibrium. That's what the body's all about. Yeah, yeah. So back to the rain barrel effect and equilibrium. Um, uh, how can we, how can we better understand our bodies to, to try to get back to that homeostasis? So the, the very best thing is you start at the surface level. What are you suffering from right now? It's the first thing I ask every single person I would see in my practice. We're going to talk about everything today that you have wrong with you. But if we could fix one thing or an order of importance, what exactly is not optimal in your body right now? And they might say, well, you know, my sleep's not the best. I wake up three to four times during the night or I have trouble falling asleep. Or they might say I'm a little groggy as I start to get out of bed. From there, I'm thinking, okay, this person might have what's called a di di dysfunctional diphasic rhythm. It means that they have less cortisol in the morning when they're supposed to be producing the most cortisol. And their cortisol, instead of being low at night, is actually high. And that could be because of light-based stimulus, minds turned on at night, worrying about what to do the next day, or lack of serotonin. If there's not enough serotonin, you can't produce enough melatonin, which won't shut off then cortisol. So what I do is start with what you have for symptoms. Begin to figure those out. Move on to the next biggest symptom. Figure that out. When your body's totally healthy, 
you're basically good. At that point, then you're looking to you know, take your health to the next level. Right now, I had all those diseases from 17 years old on. I have zero disease today. I have zero issues today. And what I look for today now is not trying to heal a specific disease. It's saying, how good can I get this body? How good can I get this mind? And every year, for whatever reason, I seem to feel better and better. Part of that is I'm doing my seasonal detoxes. Remember, right now, more than ever, we have a lack for nothing. If you're listening to this podcast right now, you have access to all the food you could need. You have access to all the supplements basically you could need. There's usually an accumulation issue rather than an, an expulsion or removal issue. And that's what I found to help take people to the next level. The, the podcast published before this one was with Dr. Sean Baker, who is the you know leading proponent of the carnivore diet. I am currently in day 10 of the carnivore diet as an experiment to see how it works with me. Are you, are you, fami- are you familiar with the carnivore diet and what are your thoughts on it? So I'm very familiar with it, but it is no, I'm not a proponent of it, but I understand why people do it. So is this something that you would like me to speak on? Yeah, I would. So I'm actually never against um, contradicting views. I actually am all for it. I love different views in this industry. It's how we grow. And so I love um, the debate. I love getting to the root of it because if you're a health practitioner or you're a PhD or you're a great coach, whatever it might be, all you want is what's best for people for the most part. That's what I found in our industry. I mean, I think you and I, like people we know, we want what the best for people. So you come out with diets and something such as the carnivore diet. It's not like it hasn't been around before, but now we have a a nice name, a fun name to it. You have to keep in mind, there are so many flaws in this diet. I mean, it's just, it's flawed from the get-go. And there, I mean, it would be a whole podcast to talk about this. But we can at least go over some of the main points. The reason why, and I will give you this, the reason why a lot of people, such as someone that I greatly admire, which is Jordan Peterson and his daughter, got great results on it is most likely because both Jordan Peterson and his daughter have some type of massive uh, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or did, as well as candida overgrowth, as well as potentially a host of other microbiome-based issues, as well as what's called intestinal permeability. And so when they eat certain carbohydrates, which are called fructo, oligo, di, mono, and polysaccharides, it allows for fermentation in the gut. That allows them to get bloating and all sorts of fermentation and bacterial overgrowth, which seeps through the gut wall, which then turns on the immune system. And the immune system then begins to attack their joints or could be anything, could be whatever you're genetically predisposed to. Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, um, MS, you name it. So the problem with the carnivore diet is that it's using a conventional medicine approach to a true underlying root cause imbalance. So it's treating acutely by saying, okay, there's this bacterial overgrowth or candida overgrowth, and we just won't feed it because protein is not going to feed that bacteria unless it begins to putrefy. So what we're doing is we're, again, masking the symptoms. Why would you go on the carnivore-based diet? And then there's also a host of validated clinical research That's long-term clinical research, not short-term of being on a carnivore-based diet. And again, if you want to quote the Messiah as being on a a carnivore diet, you can feel free to do so. But we've already seen that their genetics are very different than ours, meaning like in the United States or Europe. And so you're looking at different genetics. And I would say even beyond that, they don't have a lot of longevity. 
So if you want to live a long life, their average life expectancy is like 67, 68 years old. It's less than a decade of people in the US and more than 12 to 13 years less than Europe. So that's certainly not a model of health for me. And the other thing is we know from genetics and every APOE genotype that the maximum amount of protein for a person's diet is about 25%. And if you're looking at it from a cancer-based standpoint, when people go over 19% of their diet in protein, whether it's animal-based or vegan-based, their levels of IGF-1 increase greatly, which leads then to a greater cause of cancerous tumor growth. I mean, I could literally just go through all of the reasons of why this should not be a long-term diet. And, I, and the reason I'm so passionate about this is because I'm on, my only allegiance is to the truth. If the carnivore diet was the truth, I'd be all for it. Yeah, well, it's good, it's good to get, diff, get, get differing opinions and pro, um, perspectives on it. Um, I, I myself do have an overgrowth of candida and that was one of the main, uh, motivators to, to tackle this. You know, I'm taking high dose oregano oil daily, um, to try to zap it, which is <laughs> the, non, the non-medical term. Uh, and also, yeah, just experimenting, experimenting with this for a month. Um, so I just want to say that that is how to use a keto or carnivore based diet is as a medical use. And so that's why from the very beginning, I will always say in the short term, there, you can do some very beneficial things such as that. But remember, for, I, I just worry that people extrapolate this over the long term. And that right there is where it starts to get dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I, I, I think that if you're not informed and you're not careful about what you're eating and how long and, and what sort of tendencies um, are, would, be, would come from um, you know, eating, eating in one specific way, you know, if you're just, if you're on the tuber diet and all you eat is tubers for, for three years, you know, you're going to be probably going to be missing something. That's right. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about water. Uh, I think water quality is something that I'm really passionate about and it's because maybe it's because I'm a Pisces. Maybe it's because, uh, I have float tanks, but I have found that um, all the water that my family drinks is all gathered at a spring that's five minutes from my house. And uh, one thing in your book that you talk about is, is, is how terrible tap water is for us. Is it safe to say that most people, no matter where you live in the United States or North America, that, you're, that the tap water that you're drinking is, is, um, is not optimal? Without a doubt. Even if it doesn't contain fluoride, which... Again, these are, these are a lot of topics where people will point to the science like, oh, well, it um, helps decrease cavities. I mean, there's a lot of debate over that. And I'm not the person that's going to say yes or no. What I can tell you is that you certainly don't need fluoride to stay cavity free. But if you want to say, okay, it helps with that. Well, it doesn't help by ingesting it, by literally swallowing it. That's what we're losing the research by swishing around in your mouth. Maybe it does not mean that you need to ingest it. What it means is that if you just swish it around your mouth a little bit because you believe in fluoride, fine. But we even have water for infants before they even have teeth yet that's fluoridated. And it's actually marketed that way. It's one of the most insane things I've ever seen because fluoride, we know, slows the thyroid. It's actually used or was used in the 1970s in Germany for something for Graves' disease, which is hyperthyroidism. So we know that it's absolutely detrimental to the thyroid. The other thing is, even if your water doesn't contain uh, fluoride, it's going to contain chlorine. And that's because chlorine actually does something very beneficial. And it kills, kills things like giardia and parasites and bacteria in the water. The problem is it kills bacteria. So if you swallow chlorine, it kills the bacteria in your gut as well, which can lead to microbiome imbalance. Besides the fact that they found in every major city that they tested, there's pharmaceuticals in the water. And that's because it comes out in people's urine as a byproduct, a metabolite, and 
people flush their medication down the toilet. And most people don't know this, but a lot of people's tap water is actually recycled sewage water that goes to a treatment plant that's recycled that, of course, it's cleaned, but you then drink that. So in my opinion, just like you're doing, if you have access to spring water, whether it's bottled or not, I don't have access to a direct spring, but I drink Mountain Valley and a few other companies' um, spring water in a glass bottle that's dark. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, this is my opportunity to plug findaspring.com where you can, findaspring.com is a is a website where you can search by zip code for springs that are closest to you and it usually has stats on um uh, on the results from water testing from that source. So maybe check that out. Maybe there's one by near you in uh, in Boston. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a great great resource for people. Dr. Cabral, what have we missed? What is it that I didn't ask that you wished I did? Well, you know, there are so many topics that we can cover, and that's, I think, simply put that when we look at integrative health, it covers everything. And so what I do is I have a system just called the de-stress protocol. So people are looking for answers, but sometimes we're trying to do it through one supplement, one program, one thing, and we're not getting the answers that we desire. So what I look at is and it's just a de-stress protocol. It's looking at diet, exercise, stress reduction, toxin removal, getting the body into the rest or parasympathetic nervous system, working on emotional balance, working on, yes, your good healthy supplementation, and then the success mindset. So one of the things that we just didn't, I don't think, chat, chat about is, is how important mindset is. It's so easy to kind of give up or jump from uh, program to program, but what I want people to do is have a long-term success mindset, meaning that you might not be exactly where you want to be. You might not be have that best body or the best health or the best mindset. But as long as you continue to walk down the path of doing one, you know, one thing more that you could do for your body, a little bit better sleep, maybe work back your bedtime 15 minutes until you get to bed around 10 p.m., you're going to start moving towards greater health. And so what I want for people to do is, is begin to work on both the mind and body because in my opinion, there is no answer that cannot be uh, figured out right now through functional medicine, lab testing, and, and just good quality uh, programming. I think that's, you're right in my wheelhouse now, man. Um, as, a, as a life coach and performance coach, um, mindset is massive. And what I tell people all the time is that there really is only one mindset that works, and that's optimism. The only way that you're going to move forward in your life and get better and learn more and be happy and full of love and create abundance is if you're, if you're an optimist. And um, that doesn't come as, as naturally for people. And now we know that maybe your optimism is being cut off at the, at the knees because your gut is out of whack or because you have, you, you know, you're consuming too much fluoride or because you're being inundated with, e with electromagnetic frequencies. So it, it really does all tie together. Without a doubt. And, you know, that's that's truly it. We see a few things. You know, we see people that are empowered and we see people that are in the role of what we call, you know, victimhood, where one person gives over their power to another, whether it be a book, a program, a doctor, a practitioner. And the other person says, I need the doctor. I need the coach. I need the practitioner. I need the program. But I understand that it is me who's going to move forward. I'm going to be the one to implement the work. And every time that I seem to get off track or hit an obstacle, it does not mean that it's the end. It does not mean that the program or the doctor or the practitioner wasn't helping me. It simply means I figured out one more thing that doesn't work for my body, but now a good, I can move on to the next and I can take that knowledge and begin to grow upon it. So 
that's my goal for everyone is you're going to be able to figure it out. Give yourself time. Be patient. Be gentle with yourself and, uh, and have that optimism because that is it. You know, if you're optimistic, you'll fall down, but eventually you'll get back up. And, and that's the truth. That's the key. I've never seen anybody get it right the first time. Just know that, you know, I'm, I'm probably the worst case. I got it right. I got it wrong more times than others, but I just kept getting back up and that's what it's all about. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you willing to walk us through a little bit? Uh, Cause I'm looking at it right now, the, um, empty your rain barrel meal plan. Yeah. So that, that is our, our detox. And you know, mine is called the Dr. Brawl detox, but honestly you can find a good functional medicine detox based on the nutrients that I spoke about. So I never tell people you need to run a lab through us or do the detox through us. But what I want to do is empower you with the knowledge, the truth, and the integration from all great forms of medicine. And I'm simply a mouthpiece for those forms of medicine. And so what the detox does is it it's essentially two days of a near um, almost nothing fast. So you allow autophagy to truly kick in. There's a lot of people doing extended daily fasts, but the truth is the best research is from a longer fast, somewhere between 24 and 72 hours. What we do is we have four shakes per day that gives you just what you need, only the phase one and phase two nutrients with a little bit extra protein amino acids so that you don't become too catabolic and lose too much muscle. This will not kick you out of autophagy. If anything, for what, half hour, an hour, until you just run through those amino acids. But it gives your liver the ability to continue to break down everything that's being brought out of what's called lipolysis. As your fat cells begin to break down, and they will, as you deplete glycogen, your body is going to empty more toxins in your bloodstream. A lot of people don't know this, but your, your fat, your adipose tissue, is 300 times more toxic than your blood. And it's done on purpose. As your liver can't keep up with detox, your body pushes the toxins out of your blood, such as heavy metals and plastics, this has been proven, into, and pesticides and bug spray into your fat cells. Well, as your fat cells get broken down for energy, those toxins are now released in your bloodstream. They go right to the liver. Your liver, it needs the nutrients to break those down. It was called, essentially, using the enzymes, it was called the cytochrome P450 pathway to then conjugate them, lock them up, get them right out of your body. So we do that for the first two days, and then it is um, just what I spoke about today. I'm on day five right now. It's a shake in the morning, and it is a, a vegan-based lunch, which is um, just basically more plant-based, higher in antioxidants. And then it's another shake mid-afternoon so that no one's ever hungry. We're getting plenty of fluid. And then it's a, um, a paleo-style dinner where you can choose it to be vegan, uh, have fish, more Mediterranean-style, or you can have some um, chicken or poultry or so. So recently we learned that – uh, those born after 2014 will be the first generation that, in which the life ex- expectancy declines. And, and as, a, as a father of two small children, it's, it's really alarming. Can you give us some idea why, why the heck we're in this mess? Yeah, without a doubt. And it is sad because I have two young ones of my own. I have a four and six-year-old, uh, both of my daughters. And obviously as a parent, everything changes when you have you know, kids and it's, it's really all about them. And, and you are, you're their guardian. Like, like you're literally watching over them and you want the best. Well, the problem is that they're walking into a world that is just far more toxic than anything else. And that's the true issue is that many of our grandparents, they didn't always eat the healthiest. They um, might have had like toast for breakfast. They might have had just a little something um, for lunch or so. They ate simply. 
but they weren't exposed to these 77,000 plus man-made toxins in the environments. And right now we know, it was done by the World Health Organization as well, and they found that before a child even enters the world, there is a minimum of 200 toxins in their body. Now, what are those toxins? Mercury, aluminum, arsenic, cadmium, DDT, that hasn't been even around for 30 years, but still there in the environment, certain pesticides. So, and this is found in fetal cord blood. And so we know this to be true. The study is actually called 10 Americans, if you want to link it up or if people want to go look up. Um, so that's what's going on. And it's one of the reasons why we see a rise in almost every single disease, including cancer. One thing to know is there's no surprise about why cancer is um, raising. When I wrote The Rain Barrel Effect, I did a lot of research. This was over five years in the making. The way that we give cancer is to give them one specific pesticide. That pesticide is actually used on our food. The problem is, it's considered not to be poisonous at the small dosage that we get on food. The problem is, it's not been tested over a lifetime. The other problem is, well, what happens when you start to eat more of that? What happens when it begins to accumulate? So it's one of the sad realities that we live in, which is one of the reasons I just try to arm people with their own information, to empower them to start to follow things like a more organic diet, or at least the clean 15 and the dirty dozen, which is these 12 foods never eat unless they're organic. Just don't eat them if they're pesticide laden. And then the organic ones, if you're trying to save money um, for the clean 15, those would be ones that you could buy more conventional based. So things like that are going to allow themselves and their children to live a longer, healthier life. Okay, well then, uh, in order to take this take this podcast home, uh, I like everybody to, um, if you would, uh, finish finish the sentence, if you would. Everyone would benefit from knowing that the only natural anti-cancer diet in the world revolves around plant-based nutrition. That means that you don't have to be vegan. It means that you don't have to cut meat out of your diet or fish out of your diet. But there is no diet that proves that, and again, I'm not against uh, meat or anything like that. What I'm against is a country that is eating heavy foods that are harder to digest, that increase IGF-1 levels, uh, that can increase cancer-based rates, and getting more away from the only thing that we know cause of disease, heart disease, blood pressure or stroke, type 2 diabetes, and cancer, which in 2030 is going to surpass all other forms of mortality. If you can beat those four, your chance of living a long, healthy life is going to be dramatically increased. And what we have right now are many, many diets that are all revolving around something like a Mediterranean-based diet that are simply more plant-based, more fruit, maybe low glycemic berries, lots of vegetables. You will never go wrong there. And again, if they cause bloating, if they cause gas, if they cause inflammation, figure out what is going on with your gut that's not allowing you to be able to eat what we would naturally have as hunter-gatherers, mainly gatherers. Dr. Cabral, thank you for joining us on the Optimal Performance Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.